Well, we're glad. We're glad that you're here with us this morning to celebrate. We are here to worship our great God, and we've been walking through this story of the Bible. If you aren't here with us, Solid Rockers coming for the summer, uh, what we've been doing is simply this. We've been walking through the story of the Bible. We started in Genesis, and we're not going verse by verse, but we're kind of hanging the clothes on the clothesline. We're looking at the major stories to connect the Bible to help us make sense of this thing. It's a huge book, and for many of us who have even grown up in church all our lives, we're going, what does Noah have to do with David that has to do with Jonah that has to do with Jesus? And we've been kind of looking at how this story fits together. And we said the primary purpose of of learning this story is so that we can know God as he's revealed himself to us in his story. Because there is nothing more satisfying to our souls than to know and worship our great God. Amen. And and so we're talking about the return um, today of the Israelites from, they've been exiled into Babylon and Assyria. And today we're going to be looking at the return of the Jewish people into the land of Judah. Um, But I want to start out with this. Uh, Have you guys ever, anybody here ever cried happy tears before? Anybody ever had that experience in your life? Can I, can I just get something off my chest here to start us off with? I hate, it's a strong word, I, I really don't care for um, this emoji. And, and here's why. It's a lie. Most of the time, this is a lie from the pit of hell. When people are texting an emoji out, nobody's actually like, you're like, haha, I forgot something, and then you respond with that emoji. Most of the time, no one's laughing so hard that tears are actually coming down from their face. So quit sending me that emoji. It's, it's, the, it's the text equivalent of LOL. Always bothered me. You're not actually laughing out loud, so quit saying that you are, right? Uh, so I came up with GTS, giggles to self. Because I think that's actually a lot more honest about what I'm doing. I spread your text. I'm like, <laughs> like, that's it. Right? That's all that I'm not. It's not rolling on the floor laughing. So just stop. Okay. Um, that, that felt good. Thank you. Um, but there's this paradox here in happy tears. Because, you know, it, it, on the one hand, we're crying. But on the other hand, we're, we're, we're happy. So, so what's going on here? Um, I went on this baseball trip three summers ago, and I, I spent three months touring uh, 30 baseball stadiums. This is before I had a, a, a full-time job like an adult. And um, my dad and I were in Pittsburgh for July 4th. And I don't know if you've seen this before, if you've been to one of these major sporting events. They had a family come down onto the field, and they were, they're, they're, the husband, the father, he was serving overseas in the military. And they, they put him up on this jumbotron, it's a video, to the family saying hello to his family. But then they're like, why don't you just say hi to him in person? And he's actually there. He's not in Afghanistan or wherever he was. He was actually in Pittsburgh, and these doors open, and the dad rushes out and hugs his family. And I actually took a picture of this. It's grainy because I can't afford good seats. And so I, was, I took this little picture of these people down there, and, and you're seeing this family. And there are tears falling down their faces, but they're happy, right? And I'm sitting up in my chair, and I'm crying, but I'm happy. And I look over at my dad, and he's crying, but he's happy. We're all crying, but we're happy. What's going on there? Now, why are we all crying? I'm not bummed out. I don't have anything against family reunions. Like, so why is it that we're crying for happy? There's something unique that happens in happy tears, it's not just a simple uh, happiness, like your Pop-Tarts are done. You're just like, oh, I can't wait for like, like it. It's, 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 there's an element of sadness, but there's also an element of joy. It's heavy. 
And, and you think about this. I mean, you think about when, when a mama gives birth to a, her baby. And, and there's this moment of, of happy tears. Why? Because she's gone through nine months of swollen ankles and pain and, and ups and downs and then all the delivery. And you get to this end and this culminating moment and there's happy tears. Or you think about the Olympic athlete who, who, who has gone through years of failure and, and injuries and, and dedication day after day after day. And now there's this culminating moment on the medal podium when they're awarded this medal and it's happy tears. Or I think about a wedding day and this guy's watching his bride come down the, the aisle. Now, I think this guy, if you're looking at his face, I think he's just realizing what he's getting into. <laughs> I think these actually just might be sad tears. I, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't walked that road. But, I'm, I'm, you know, there's these, there are certain songs that I'll listen to in my car. And, man, when I'm hearing them, there's a specific, specific song. And it sings about, I was actually listening to it this morning on the way to church. And it's this song about how, how, how sinful I am, how unfaithful to Jesus I am day in and day out, and yet how faithful he is to me. And every time I turn and I come back to him, he welcomes me with open arms like the prodigal son. And what it brings out in me at times is happy tears. Where there's a, there's a sadness and a brokenness, and yet there's this joy in the beauty of our Savior. And in our story today, what we're going to see is this homecoming. The people of Judah are coming home. And just like this little bird, they're going to cry happy tears. Right? And in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, they cover, they've been gone, they've been exiled for 70 years. And these two books in the Bible, they actually cover, they were originally one scroll. So Ezra and Nehemiah was actually telling one story. We've divided it into two books. Uh, they made it easier for distribution, blah, blah, blah. But for the, the, Ezra and Nehemiah, they cover the first hundred years of this homecoming. And we'll see with the people of Judah this morning, happy tears. Now, to review, okay, we've got our, our symbols. Uh, if, you're, if you're new here with Solid Rock, you'll love this. Um, we've got, we're up to return today. So everybody remember from last week, we've got symbols to help us remember this story. And at, we're all in exile, okay, we're in chains. This week, return. We're back, right? Celebration. Happy tears. So here we go. From, from, from the top, all right? Creation. No. <laughs> from the top. God. Creation. Fall. Promise, flood, tower, patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return. Yeah, happy. All right, now, um, as we've been walking through this timeline, Solid Rock's like, where are we going next week? We're out of here. Um, Remember, God had promised, we go back to the storyline, in the patriarchs, remember, that just means the fathers, they told Abraham, the original patriarch, God made him this promise, he said, I'm going to bless your socks off, I'm going to make you into this great nation, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, that's where your nation's going to live. And so then God, he walks through this, he does this by leading the people out of Egypt, remember, he rescues them through Moses, and then through Joshua, he delivers them into the land, into the promised land, they drive out all the other nations and at last they're in this land and they prosper. There's this kingdom period where they are sitting on top of the world and they have all the blessings that God had promised through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and is finally delivered into their hands. But remember, God, he gives them this law. 
He says, we're going to make this agreement. This covenant was the word we used. And the people agreed to this covenant. And here's what the covenant was in the law. He said, I'm going to give you 613 of these rules. And you have to keep these rules. If you obey me, I'll keep you in the land and you'll prosper. If you disobey me, I'm going to kick you out of the land into exile. And what we see over 700 years in that kingdom period is mostly disobedience. And so God, being true to his word, he exiles them. This is what we looked at last week, was the exile. And we saw that he drove them out in in two parts. Remember, we had a divided kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, they're taken away by Assyria in 722 B.C. They're driven away. And then about 120 years later, 160 years later, Babylon comes and they exile Judah, the southern kingdom. And tragically, we said the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, they never return. They become known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Never again formed as a nation to this day. But the southern tribe, there's a remnant. What we're going to see this morning is that a remnant of people are preserved because remember, Jesus is coming. He's been promised through Abraham, through King David, through the people, through, he's going to be the Lion of Judah. So God's preserving this people. I remember we said last week in Deuteronomy 30 that God made this outrageous promise before they had ever even gone into the land. He said, you're going to get exiled, but then even in, in the, de- the, the depths of your sin, the pit of despair, if you will return to me, I will be faithful to bring you back into the land. And that's what's so cool about this. Nehemiah, one of those leaders that brings them back, he actually prays this prayer to God, and and he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. Look at what happens here. Nehemiah 1. He says, Please remember what you told your servant Moses. And he quotes it right here. If you're unfaithful to me as a people, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you're exiled to the ends of the earth, I'll bring you back to the place I've chosen for my name to be honored. And God, the heart of what God's doing here is showing how great he is and for the glory of his name to show that I'm stronger than any of these other gods, the Baals and the Asherahs. I am greater. I am more powerful. I'm in control of this world and of this universe. And so that you will see my faithfulness to my covenants and that I am God. I'm going to bring the people of Israel back into the land. And so he does. He brings them home just as he promised. And he does it in a really cool way. In Ezra, the beginning of Ezra, it says this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, Persia will take over Babylon. We'll talk about that in a second. The Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. We'll show you that prophecy in just a minute. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. And, and, the, and the proclamation is basically that he's allowing them to return to Judah. And how amazing is this that God moves the heart of King Cyrus. This isn't Cyrus who's fulfilling God's promise. This is God using men unto his own uh, ends. And and so here's here's what Jeremiah had prophesied. This is before they went into the land. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland, talking about Judah. Israel and her neighboring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, said the Lord. I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. And there's two promises here, and we see them both come true because that's how God rolls. First of all, it's 70 years. He said 70 years will be in captivity. And there's two ways to do the math here. First of all, you could see when the people were exiled, which remember they they got exiled in three waves. The first wave was in 605 B.C., 
And then the people started coming back in 536, 70 years. The other way you could look at it, that last wave was in 586 when the temple was burned to the ground and when it was restored was 516 BC, which would again be 70 years. We don't know which one he's referencing, but either way, God is, is, is being faithful to his promise. The second thing that happens here is we said, he said the Babylonians will be punished for their sins. And so we saw, remember, Assyria was the world power at first. 700 years they reign. Then this bigger fish, Babylon, comes across, swallows up Assyria. Now they're running the show. They're the ones that took Judah out of the land of Judah. They rule for about 100 years. And then this even bigger fish, Persia, comes along. And for about 200 years, Persia's reigning an even wider part of the landscape. And they're the ones that God uses to punish Babylon. And they're the ones King Cyrus is the Persian king at the time of the return. And you can see here, this is most of the known world at the time. And everything that's ugly color of orange, that's the Persian Empire. Now, what we see here is the Persians are much kinder than the Babylonians. Remember we said the Babylonians, they were wicked. They would skin people alive. They had mounds of skulls everywhere as decorations. The Persians, and King Cyrus in particular, was actually known for his kindness. And one of the things that Cyrus did is he allowed all the people that they had captive, he allowed them to return to their own lands, to their ancestral lands, to worship their own gods. And this isn't just the kindness of Cyrus. This is God at work among the nations to accomplish his purposes. And so the people of Judah, they return to the land at about 530 B.C. And what we see in Ezra 2 is there's about 42,000 of them. Now that might sound like a lot of people, but originally with Joshua, there were millions of people that came into the promised land. This is a fraction but it's an important fraction because it's God sustaining the people of Judah to fulfill his promises. Now, there's nothing like coming home. I talked about my baseball trip. I was gone for three months. And even as great as it was, all the stadiums, all the experiences, all the people that I got to see, there's nothing quite like coming home, right? Solid Rockers were like, yeah, we hate it here. Um, So this is a picture of me at the end of the trip in the Kenai Airport. Okay, what a lovely sight that place is. And I come home, and, and after everything, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to be with my family. So here's a Fra- Fra- Frankino family selfie. Um, and I got to see my nephew, Ray, who had, was a, a day old when I left. So I got to see him for like an hour, and then I was gone. And there's nothing more beautiful than being back home, being back with family. And Judah gets to experience this. But when Judah came home, it wasn't their grandpa's promised land. It was a wasteland. Their grandpas, I mean, you picture them, their parents and grandparents bouncing them on their knee, talking about the splendors of the the temple that Solomon had built and what Jerusalem looked like, this prosperous nation. And when they get back, the temple has been burned to the ground. The wall is in ruin, okay? It looks like the youth center after a a youth group lock-in, right? It's just desolate. I'm getting calls from the janitors. They left what on the ceiling? How do they even do that, you know? And this place is just a mess. And so when they come back home, they've got to do some major renovations, okay? They need to call in the uh, HDTV twins. I, uh, sorry, cheap laughs. Um, And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are actually all about, renovations, okay? This is God forms a a reconstruction team. And he's got a couple of guys that he's going to bring in here, three main guys. The first guy is Zerubbabel which is just fun to say, Zerubbabel. And uh, he comes back, and he's a, he's a Persian governor, uh, Jewish governor in Persia, I should say, and he comes back. The first half of Ezra is, is Zerubbabel and the people rebuilding the temple. 
Then the second half of Ezra is Ezra, who is a scribe or a priest. He is one of the uh, line, the people of the line of, of Levi. Remember, they're the priests, the ones to be set apart to do God's work. He rebuilds the people spiritually, and we're going to center on that this morning. But he's going to reteach the law to the people, get them back into that covenant relationship with God. And then the book of Nehemiah is mostly built around the guy of the same name. He was this cupbearer uh, for King Artaxerxes, the next king of Persia. But he becomes a governor in Judah, and he's the one that rebuilds the Jerusalem wall, the wall that goes around outside of the city to protect it. So you've got these three men uh, who help rebuild Jerusalem. But what I want to do for the remainder of this morning is, is, is focus in on this one passage, this amazing passage in Nehemiah 8. If you have your Bibles, the verses will be on the screen as well. Um, and, and, I, and I believe this is the seminal moment, maybe the most important moment of the, the revival of the people of Judah. And it's led by Ezra. And I want tell you about Ezra. Ezra, back in Ezra 7, it says that Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. So here's Ezra, this, this priest, and his heart is he loves God and he loves God's word, and then he wants the people of God to love God and to love his word. It's simple, but it's something he's willing to live for and die for. And, and see, I believe that every, and I think this is a blank in your notes, every spiritual revival starts with an awakening to the Word of God. Every spiritual revival or, or reformation, a, a major change in a community to come back to God, it starts with an awakening to his word. And we see this throughout scripture. If, if you remember uh, King Josiah, if this sounds familiar, when we were talking about the kingdom period, King Josiah, that little eight-year-old, remember when he becomes 16, they're cleaning out the temple. And what do they find? They find the law. God's people had not even been reading his law. And when they discover it and they read it, they're broken because they realize they've disobeyed it. And they come back and they renew that covenant with God. And the whole culture starts to change. We saw this the Protestant Reformation actually celebrating this this year is its 500th anniversary. And, and, and the heartbeat of the Reformation was coming back to what they called sola scriptura, which basically means God's word is the sole authority, not the Catholic Church, not the Pope. It's God and his word. And Martin Luther, he discovers, he comes back and he reads Romans for what it really is and realizes we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, not our works. And God starts to change the culture and, and in ways that have impacted us today in this church that we have no idea about. The Great Awakenings in America, 1700, 1800s, it was the exact same thing. People coming back to the Word of God and it changing them. And this is what happens in Nehemiah 8. This is all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. That's the, the wall where, that Nehemiah built. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, most likely talking about the first five books known as the Torah, which the Lord had given for Israel to what? To obey. This is so cool. I love it. It says they came with a unified purpose. And this was their purpose. We want to hear the word of God and we want to obey the word of God. And when we're ready to listen and obey, man, get ready. Because some amazing things are about to happen. And in verse 2, it says, So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. I love that line, all the children old enough to understand. So I don't know if, like, I don't know where, uh, if there's, like, some massive nursery somewhere that they're not referencing here. Uh, who's taking care of those babies? That's what I want to know. Um, 
In verse 3, it says, He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. Now, can I just be honest for a moment here? I'm very jealous of Ezra. He gets to start early in the morning and go until noon, right? I, I don't get to start until 1130. I still have to stop at noon, right? That's not fair. That's not fair. This would be a preacher's dream, right? It'd be a dream. And I lo- and pay and listen to this. All the people listened closely <laughs> to the book of the law, right? Not texting, not scrolling through Facebook and Instagram. I saw some of you when I was walking up front. All right, you can be honest. I got 30 minutes, and if I don't use a PowerPoint, you guys are gonna fall asleep. Right? This is today's attention span. I've still probably lost a third of you. Anyway, uh, verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood, and then a bunch, if you guys are looking for boy baby names, uh, here is just a whole list for you. I know everybody likes weird names today, so uh, have at it. And, and it's really, what, what is about to happen here is it's not just, they're not just going to describe the process of what happened then. What he's about to describe is this ancient ritual that before they opened the word of God, they would walk through. There's some rich symbolism. So we're actually going to reenact this today. And I was supposed to bring my Bible up. Who has a Bible? Let me see. Can I see your Bible? I promise I might give it back. All right. So this is what it would happen here. All right. So let's walk through this. So you're going to do what it says. I'll, I'll be Ezra. Okay. Ezra stood on a platform in view of all the people. When the people saw him open the book, See, I was going to have to swipe. I wasn't going to work. When the people saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Very good. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And this is so cool because what would happen here, they had this, what they would say, they would have this, 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 this uh, kind of a song that they would go through to thank God for his word. It would, Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech which was to say, we praise you, God. We bless you, God, the king, the ruler of the universe, for giving us your word. Now, I'm going to be honest, the tune that I was singing there is from the Bare Naked Ladies Christmas album. That's, that's how I memorize that. And just for the record, that's sung by fully clothed men, just so I don't get emails. Um, so, so they sing this song, they say, thank you, God, the ruler of the universe, for giving us your word. And then it said, all the people chanted. Amen. As they lifted their hands. Don't worry, most people deodorized. You'll be fine. They lifted their hands. Keep them up. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You can just sit down. <laughs> you can just have a seat. Have a seat. <laughs> you should be lucky it wasn't weeping and gnashing of teeth and rending their clothes. Thank you. Uh, so anyhow, we're back. We're back. Reverence, Justin, reverence. So, um, but, but what I, it's a short ritual, but it's packed with meaning. And I, I want to kind of unpack that a little bit here as they thank God for their scriptures. Now, when do you normally see people lifting their hands in the air? Like most people are just not walking around like antenna, right? Like, so what, what kind of context is that usually in? And what I was, what, what I, th- what I think of when I think of that is as a little child, Lifting their hands in the air, like my little niece June, after the service, she'll come up and just put her hands up in the air. And what she's saying, pick me up, right? Pay attention to me. Give me something from above, hopefully a lollipop or some Cheerios, right? She wants something. She's coming. It's a relational posture of expectancy. 
And it's, it's this idea of I'm ready to receive something from you. I need you. And I love this symbolism as we come to the word of God, as, as we come open and we're basically expecting, we say, God, I need you. I need to hear from you. I need to see you. Lord, pick me up. There's this expectancy that comes with our hands in the air. And then when they said, amen, amen, it's this idea, the word amen means true or trustworthy. Let it be so. I believe. And in in Hebrew, when they repeat something, it's an intensifier. It's saying, Lord, this is really, really, really true. Lord, we believe what you're saying to us. And then they bow down. And this, this is a symbol, of course, of humility. That they come before their God. And this is not something that we do. I mean, that's the one I didn't make you do, okay? <laughs> Why? Because that's awkward for us. That's a, and some of us, like for me, it would just be the actually physical thing of getting down and then back up today. But, but we, when we bow down, what are we saying? He is God and I am not. He tells me what's up, not the other way around. And so we come, and man, is this how we relate to Scripture? That we come expectant, we come needy, we come, God, I need a word from you. If you don't give me your word, how can I see? How can I take a step forward? And when we come to him saying, we're ready to believe what you say is true, and we come in humility saying, you're God and I'm not, and I'm going to let you tell me how it is. And then in verse 7, it says the Levites, and then your baby boy names again, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. This is really cool. Ezra reads it, and then the Levites, they actually go amongst the people, and they would sit down, kind of circle up, and they would explain what was going on in the world. This is the, the word. This is our first small groups, basically. This is what's happening here. It's home group, right? We've got Alan Clinton and his group over here. We've got Bill Granger and his group. We got Blair and his Diamond M Ranch posse that keeps growing and growing and growing over here, right? And they're just kind of unpacking the meaning of what they just read. And then, but then this is where it gets bizarre. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Israelite and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the word of God. What's going on here? Why are the people, he says they're openly weeping. This is strange. Why, why, have you read the book of the law? Like maybe it's just they got to some of those parts in Leviticus and they're just like, this is so long and boring, right? Like we, uh, we don't understand cubits and festivals. I don't know. But no, they, they, why are they weeping? Well, what's the story? What's the story? The story that they're reading is this, it's really a tragic story. God, he makes this awesome world. And then we come in and just trash the place. And and the recounting of the story of Israel, and and they say this, if you read Nehemiah 9, the very next chapter, it's just them telling the story, and we're seeing that God gives them all these wonderful promises and blessings, but the people of God, his chosen people, do nothing but spit on them and rebel against him, and turn to other gods, and they've got all these dysfunctional relatives, these sinful genes that have been handed down to them. I mean, honestly, the Old Testament is a tragedy. And as we read this story, we see, I mean, the judges period, the kingdom period, again and again, it's this unfaithfulness. The story that they're reading is a spotlight 
on their brokenness and rebellion. And it causes them to weep. For the record, it's a right response. When we see our sin, what the law does is it reveals our, our own sinfulness. So it's the right response, but it's not the final response. Sad tears should never be the final response to the word of God. And then watch this. Verse 10, Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a, rich feast of, with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's actually the only time that that phrase, word for word, is in the Bible, which is amazing. But you go, wait a second, is is there a disconnect here? Is Nehemiah, like, out to lunch? He sees all these people crying, and he goes, let's party, right? Let's fire up the barbecue. Even allows soda. Look at that, sweet drinks. So he says, don't be sad. Why? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, what does that mean? It's a joy that comes when there's a spotlight on our own failure and sinfulness and rebellion and weeping is appropriate, but it must be immediately be combined with an urge to party. Now, why is that? The celebrations that Israel's called to is not because of their character or their circumstances. They're a mess. But it's because of God's character who he is, in light of who they are. That's why it says the joy of the Lord is your strength, not the joy of the Justin, not the joy of anybody else, it's the joy of the Lord. And when we take our eyes off of our brokenness and look at the healer, we find strength. When you read through a a passage like Psalm 103, this is where we find our strength. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. That's why we rejoice. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. That's why we rejoice. He will not constantly accuse us, nor remain angry forever. That's why we rejoice. He doesn't punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. That's why we rejoice. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. That's why we rejoice. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. That That's why we rejoice. The joy of the Lord is my strength. See, right as our brokenness and failure is highlighted and exposed, God's word gets all up in my business. It gets up all up in my face, and he wraps his arms around me and says, yes, you're a mess, but I love you, and I've forgiven you. Mercy and grace. Blow all your cash and have a party. And they did. They partied. Verse 12, so the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy. Why? Because they had heard God's words and understood them. When we see God for who he is, when we hear God's word that, yes, you're broken, but I have sent Jesus to come and restore you, there's joy. There's joy. Yes, they inherited a tragic tale. And yeah, they're going to continue to add to that tragic tale. We'll keep reading. They keep messing up. But it's not the final word. God sent his living word into the world to forgive and restore. 
and give life. And that's why God's word causes us to grieve and dance at the same time. It's happy tears. It's this like, yay, right? It's this paradox of emotion. Steve Martin captured it well, right? That's just that he always does. Thanks, Steve. Um, get you off the screen. Um, and that's why I love the idea at Easter time. There's this, there's this tradition called Lent, which is basically a preparation for Easter. And, and I love the word. It's this fasting. It's this time of, 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 of understanding our brokenness. But, but look at what they call it. It's called a bright sadness. I love that expression. A bright sadness. Just like happy tears. It's a paradox. It's a contradiction of terms where there's this deep sorrow and sadness for the suffering of Jesus because of my brokenness, because of my sin, but that cannot be disconnected from the brightness that Jesus suffered unto death, but then he rose from the dead. He's alive, and there's hope, and there's forgiveness. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And today in our world, there's real suffering, there's real sin, but there is hope. There's a bright sadness in our lives. And can we be real for a second? Like, if we take an honest look at our lives and the world around us, then there's a lot of reason to, to cry sad tears. I mean, I look in our community today. I mean, there, drugs have never been more problematic. Families have never been more broken. Foster, hair, foster care rates have never been higher. We're one of the leading... Uh, Num- we have some of the leading numbers in foster care uh, in, the, in, the, in the nation. We live in a nation that's collectively blatantly turned its back on God like never before. In the words of Bob Dylan, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. It's getting there. If we just look on this plane, if we just look on this plane, and I look at my own life, man, I come from this crazy line of hot-headed Italians. I got this family history that's checkered at best. And if my oral history was given like Nehemiah 9, there would be plenty of things that I would be utterly ashamed and broken over if you read through the story of my life. And when we see God and we see that he is holy and we see that he is just and he must punish every sin that I've ever committed, it ought to cause real fear, real trembling, real sadness, real brokenness. Because my sin is real, but so is my Savior. So is my Savior. God, yes, he's holy and he's just and he must punish sin, but he also loves us. He is also slow to anger. He's also full of grace and mercy. And to prove that, he sent Jesus to this world to take every single one of my sins on him. Every single one of them has been punished. It's been paid in full. And now I can live in his resurrection power, restored like the people of Israel. So yes, you're a blowout. I say that in love. In fact, you don't even know how rotten you are. But you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And we don't want to navel gaze here, meaning we don't want to just look inward at our own failures and only let there be sad tears. Yes, we need to see sin for what it really is, but then we must take our gaze and take it off of ourselves and set it on the one who loved us and came and died for us. That's where we'll find the joy that gives us strength. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what sins you're dealing with, but I know you do. And I don't know what suffering you're encountering in your life, but I know you do. And there is real, cons- real cause for real tears out there. 
and cry them, cry sad tears, but let them be happy tears, not because your sin isn't real, but because your Redeemer lives. If you stand with me, I want to end on that ritual. If you'd I'm going I'm to pray to God and thank him for giving us his words. So if you put your hands in the air with me, and let's, let's be expectant. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melakalah. God, you are the king of the universe. We bless you and thank you for giving us your word. Your written word that showed us how sinful we are, how messed up we are, how far we've fallen from you, uh, that we don't deserve to stand in your presence. But God, we also thank you for your living word that you sent to come to this earth, to be sin, who knew no sin, to, to, to take our sin upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for your living word that came and lived and died in our place so that we might be able to come into your presence like we are right now to say these words and to thank you for being a God of mercy and grace. May we be a people that hear your word and that obey your word and fully rest in the living word, and that is Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen.